Hey, Ray, how you feeling? I'll tell you what, my knees are a little sore today, and that means I need some CBD, I think. I have to agree with you on that, Ray, because I've had back issues since we've had our son. Plus, don't forget, you're an athlete. You're a big bicycle rider, so that gets you, like, you know, in occasional pain from, from the workout involved with that, not to mention what it does, the wear and tear on your joints. It's all part of being active and aging, and CBD as you said, mixed with a little medicinal really makes a difference in controlling the pain. You know, Marcus, when it comes to CBD, we have a new sponsor, uh, One CBD, and they have the right idea, I think, when it comes to making the CBD products that you want to manage your pain. They work with hemp farmers committed to sustainable development with the benefit of the environment in mind, which is important to people too. That's why they purchase only 100% organically grown hemp, totally free from chemical pesticides and fertilizers. Plus, they have a money-back guarantee if you are not satisfied with the product. We suggest you go to onecbd.com and check them out. That's O-N-E-C-B-D.com. And you can find out all the information about what their products are. Maybe you can just find the product that's best for you and your needs when it comes to CBD. And if you order after hearing them on the Unbalanced History of Rock and Roll, use the code word BALANCE for 20% off your first order. And that order goes in at onecbd.com. Check it out. Hey, Marcus, remember a couple episodes ago we were talking about the clash when we went to the Bahamas? I remember that very well. That trip in the imbalance time machine was a blast. <laughs> it was. It seriously was. In this week's episode, in which we talked to Chris France from Talking Heads, I want to go back to the Bahamas. Is that okay with you? It's totally okay with me because the Talking Heads recorded some music there. They recorded music there with the Tom Tom Club. We learned a lot about what happened to Compass Point in the Bahamas in our conversation with Chris on this episode of the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll, which is sponsored as always by Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hatboro. Check them out at crookedeyebrewery.com and buy one CBD. Find out all you need about CBD at onecbd.com. You start talking about the talking heads and I go into geek mode, bro. How can you not go into geek mode? The music and the sound was so different than the mainstream and... And different from the other guys in the punk movement that they were involved in. That was part of their appeal, that everybody wasn't exactly the same. They all had different textures and they were different in a lot of ways. Very different, but they had a very unique rhythm section. Jerry Harrison's guitar on lead and then he would go to keyboards. And Dave Byrne, which I didn't realize, I know he's a guitar player and a musician, but Chris really gave him a lot of props for being a very good rhythm guitar player and, and a pretty good leader too if i read that right yes and of course as a band they all had conflicts but that goes with any band when you spend a lot of time together it's going to happen with any group of people when you spend a lot of time together your spouses your siblings your cousins whomever it happens Starting with Psycho Killer and Talking Head 77, they created a sensation that would continue through the years that would take them to Compass Point, like we just said, and all kinds of places that they might not have envisioned.
envisioned at the beginning of their ride. And we're lucky enough this week to talk with Chris France, the drummer in Talking Heads, and one of the co-creators of the Tom Tom Club, and so much more great music in the world, and uh, a really great guy. I'm really looking forward to sharing this with everybody. Yeah, this interview was a blast. And let me tell you, his book, Remain in Love, is a fantastic read all the way through. He shares great stories. He shares great insight. He gives you a background on his life. It's really fun to see firsthand how that 70s alternative punk scene really grew and really took off. And then you see this band that's alternative and punk with a soul groove include world beats into their music. And then they do their solo projects and then everything that they did afterward. It's really, really a fun ride. Chris wrote it very well. I highly recommend the book. And away we go with Chris France. How are you guys doing? All right? Yeah. Managing a lot of stress, you know, as I'm sure you guys are feeling too, just, you know, about the state of affairs and everything. But, you know, we're doing all right. We're managing to keep this little show we do on the road by doing it this way for the most part, though. You guys good? Tina good? Yes, we're both well, thank goodness. You know, uh, as you say, it's it's a challenging time, a very, very challenging time for everybody. And uh, usually Tina's mother was from France and I wrote part of my book there. She has a lovely home in Brittany, her mother's family home that we usually go to in late August and we stay for a couple of months, you know, through September and October, come home to vote. But we can't go there this year. We can't go anywhere, but especially Uh now the EU says we can't go to Europe. So, (laughs) you know, what a fucked up world. Where, Where are you guys located? Philadelphia area. Oh, Philadelphia. Long time hotbed for you guys. Yeah, I remember Ed Shockey. He was a wonderful guy. He what loved a- you guys. He's the one who turned me on to you. Yeah, yeah, he was a early champion of ours. You have the book Remain in Love coming out on the 21st of July. It's a book yeah. that is a lifetime in the making. How long did you actually work on writing the book? I had the idea to write the book many years ago, and for one reason or another, I procrastinated, and I I didn't want to burn any bridges with my bandmates, so I kept it on the down low. But then, a few years back, my friends kept saying, Chris, when is this book you've been talking about? When are you going to do it? And uh, they kept prodding me, and so I went and I got an agent. I thought, you know, I need a good agent so I get a good deal. And I got this great literary agent and he uh, he said, here's what you got to do, Chris. You got to write an outline, a synopsis and three chapters and I'll get you a deal. And I said, okay. I did that. I gave it to him. And a week later, I had like three book deals. And uh, then I sat down and I said to myself, oh, my God, I've got to write the whole book now. (laughs) And, you know, three chapters is one thing, but 400 pages is something else. So I had an enormous anxiety attack, which I I thought, oh, my God. Then I took some CBD oil that I I bought up in Vermont and it calmed me right down and I got to work on it. And that was like two years ago. And I worked on the the actual writing for about a year and a half with some gaps, you know, like during the Christmas holidays and stuff when I would just say, forget it, I'm not working. (laughs) But I wrote part of it here in Connecticut, which is where our main residence is. And I wrote a good part of it in France, in Brittany, by the seashore, really beautiful. And I wrote another good portion down at Compass Point in the Bahamas, where Talking Heads 
recorded more songs about buildings and food and Remain in Light and where we did a couple of Tom Tom Club albums and a Ziggy Marley album. And One of my favorite albums ever, by the way, is uh, One Bright Day. I just love that record, man. Thank you. Yeah, that it's a good record. My preference is Conscious Party, although One Bright Day... I has, like that too, but... Yeah, One Bright Day has its good points also. And... Uh, so, so to answer your question, it, overall, it took a couple of years. Then you finish it, and then it takes another, uh, you know, good length of time to get the final edit that everybody's happy with. And I feel very fortunate to have worked with some good people, some good editors. But the main one was Tina. Tina was my my real editor. Now, was she she was so she was beside you every step of the way in writing this book to make sure she was beside me, but she was not looking over my shoulder. And when I thought I was finished, I showed it to her because if she hadn't liked it, we, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Woven well into the life story that you shared, the music, the art, you made it perfectly clear that through all of this time, you have remained head over heels in love with Tina. And that's very clear throughout the entire book. And I guess you could say, without giving too much away, pretty much that first time you sort of asked her out was pretty much when you, I guess, were full on, she's going to be mine someday, she and I are going to be together. Was it at that point? Well, I certainly hope so, yeah. You know, Tina was a, and still is a super attractive woman, and I was not alone in uh, noticing that. <laughs> I guess not. So there was some competition, but uh, but I was very persistent, and I I, uh, I stuck to my guns. Well, you recently posted a picture of you two uh, back at your nuptials about you when it was your anniversary a couple of weeks ago, and I posted there my favorite rock and roll couple. And through the years, it you kind you two grew in that way in my mind because so many couples come and go. Many people don't stay together as long as you guys. It was forty three years since you've been married, right? Yes. I guess you. Were all right, Chris, I guess you were the guy. <laughs> <laughs> what can I say? I, I'm a very lucky guy. But yeah, my marriage to Tina is is a big part of the book because uh, it's been so great, so wonderful. And uh, as I say, my love for her remains very strong, even after 43 years of marriage. Dipping back to your childhood when you were listening to a lot of music, some of the things that you got to experience were like as a music lover, watching folk go electric, seeing the Motown scene explode, the stack scene explode, seeing Southern rock develop out of all of that. Now, what were your perceptions and what did you see as a young kid who loved music, who loved art, was obviously geared towards art? What were you noticing about all of that? And were all these changes part of why you wanted to do music? Well, what I came to believe, probably because of the Beatles and bands like The Who, when they came out with Tommy and when Andy Warhol, you know, supposedly produced the Velvet Underground, I thought, well, and Bob Dylan with the song Like a Rolling Stone, I thought, oh, wow, pop music can really be elevated to the level of fine art if pop musicians have the fine art in them, you know? And I think prior to that, a lot of people thought, well, pop music, that's nice. But um, in fact, 
it can be as important as any other art form with the right ingredients. And with Talking Heads and also with Tom Tom Club, Tina said this to Dick Clark on the American Bandstand show. When Dick Clark said, <laughs> Dick Clark, he's from Philly. He said, Tina, ultimately, what would you like to accomplish with this band? And Tina looked at him and she said, well, Dick, we'd like to make our mark in music history. And that's what we did. We did it. And that's what, you know, the Beatles did and the Stones did, and, and many, many James Brown did. At some point, it, it becomes more than just making records. Yes. It's a bigger thing. I just want to say that bigger thing, part of that other X Factor you're referring to, is the impact that Talking Head 77 and Forward it had on an incredibly large group of Americans. I'm one of them. I was prime target for the era, you know what I'm saying? I was already into that kind of music and looking at different stuff, and then you guys come along and your lovely bride drops that bass on Psycho Killer. On, and I guess I heard Ed playing it on Q102. That's where he was then. And I just went, what the fuck is this? And went to the store the first day and bought 77. And it's it's a part of my DNA and part of my rock and roll parenting, too. I passed love of, of your music and the music of your era, punk rock and everything else, on to my kids. And I just got to thank you, man. I can't believe we're actually getting it. I'm, this is my fanboy moment, Marcus, okay. here on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, talking with Chris France. And uh, it's just I've always really just loved what you guys did. And every time that people thought you'd pushed it a li as far as you could, you uh -huh. would do the next thing. And it just always blew my mind. And that was the same when with Tom Tom Club. I was a college uh, radio DJ when that came out and just was like, man, these, these two can do no wrong. And you've proven me right through the decades. So thank you for that, too. Thank you. I appreciate that. And, you know, we just we had a really good work ethic. Our band did. And uh, we weren't afraid of putting in the time that it takes to, like, accomplish something unexpected. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we also had this I think we really had love for each other, even though in sometimes it, it, it might have been a little uh, dysfunctional from time to time, but not all the time. There's a lot of very very good times with Talking Heads. And I hope I've conveyed that in this book, that it, it was, there was a great deal of pleasure involved. Yes, there were some conflicts and everybody likes to hear about the conflicts. I heard some woman on BBC radio yesterday talking about literature and she said, nobody wants to read about a good marriage. People want to read about <laughs> uh, Wrong. And uh, I thought, I hope you're wrong about that. Totally <laughs> I'll tell you what, i tell you what, I, I don't spend that much time on Facebook these days, but when I do, and a couple posts, uh, a couple that's a good couple, right? Like you're talking about, posts a picture from their wedding 25, 30, 35 years ago. The way people react to that tells me that people do want to hear about a good yeah. marriage. They want, people want love. And you two have been lucky, and it, and it extends beyond your just you two with your circle because you've had great love, great art, and great lives. And that's really what it's all about, right? Happiness and love mm -hmm. and finding your place. It certainly is, yes. And that music has helped so many of us to find our place. Oh, yeah. You throw on a Talking Heads record, all of a sudden, man, you're just feeling good. You're just oh. feeling fine. And no matter which style or album, people just love the music. It matters still. Here we are, right? All these years. What was the last year you guys made uh, made a record together? Uh, it's 89? Oh, Talking Heads. 
Yeah. 88. 91. 91. 91. Okay. And 43 years, just like your marriage. And people still love, I still play Psycho Killer on on MMR in Philly. Uh, comes, you know, comes through all the time. No. Can I talk to you about CBGBs? Because, you know, uh, we are like total geeks about. about that. We were both too young to be there. I, I ended up spending plenty of time at CBs over the years. Got to know Hilly. I booked some bands in there well after, you know, it was the influencing place. But it was always so great. What was it like for you guys? I know it's portrayed in the movie that they did about CBGB, which I thought was a fun uh, Hollywood romp. Yeah. But, uh, you know, what was it like to be in there your first couple times and being the new guys, you know, and there's kind of an established scene starting to come together? What was that like? Well, the scene was still very, I think the word is nascent. E- even when we made our, even when I walked over and asked Hilly if we could audition. But the night we played the first time, it was supporting the Ramones. It was our audition. And there was maybe 20 people in the audience. Half of them were there to see the Ramones. And most of them, most of those 10 were girlfriends of the Ramones. <laughs> and, and then there was our friends who made up the other half, most of whom were people we went to RISD with that were also living in New York. And it was really small, which was great because if you messed up or didn't sound so good, not that many people saw that happen. <laughs> but CBGB's was like an incubator, not just for Talking Heads, but also for the Ramones and television and Patti Smith and the shirts and Mink Deville. It was a place where we could play on a regular basis, like say one weekend per month, and we could we could make our rent in one weekend, and we could also uh, you know develop our stagecraft. And at some point, I think it was a summer of uh, summer of was it seventy five that Hilly had this festival of underground rock. And it was a great idea. All kinds of bands played. And uh, a guy named James Walcott, a very good writer, was working for the Village Voice then. And he did a piece called uh, Tired of Glitter, the conservative impulse of the new rock underground. And uh, <laughs> and then they had a big picture of talking heads. <laughs> nice. It was like our we've been playing for, for like three months. <laughs> wow. And we were on the cover of the Village Voice, which was like, you Pretty know. Pretty good. <laughs> so we knew that we were doing something right. And, and the New York Times came down. And it, I don't think the New York Times does this anymore, where they go to like some dive bar and do a story about bands that have not even made their first record yet. But they did in those days, a guy named John Rockwell. And uh, he also wrote about opera and ballet, but but he was down at CBGB's digging it. And slowly but surely, the scene gathered momentum. And I, you would see uh, people from England, like journalists from England, Charles Shar Murray and uh, Caroline Kuhn and, and music people from Japan and from other parts of Europe and even Latin America, people would travel there to check it out. It was still like on a good night, maybe a hundred people there, something like that. But slowly but surely it it snowballed into a, a very happening place where on a night that we played, there would be lines around the block. That's crazy. And uh, it was like, you know, it was like the stuff of dreams coming true. 
And that's 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 how it was for us. You were part of the scene like you got to not only develop your sound, but you got to watch the Dead Boys develop their sound. The Ramones, Blondie, right. Television, right. Klaus Nomi, all of these quirky acts that were lumped into one category because they didn't fit any of the other categories. Was it fun watching these other bands develop and go on to other things and see what they did and how they evolved and to be part of that firsthand the way you were? It, it was a total gas and um, I'm so happy I was able to be part of that. You know, you know, one of the great things that Hilly did, and this was very smart, if you had performed at CBGB's even only one time, you never had to pay admission again when you came in the door. So it became like a clubhouse for all the people people you just mentioned. You could even get, if the bartender liked you, you could even get a a free drink or two. And so it was a a real hangout for all the bands. And not just the bands. It it was uh, filmmakers like Jim Jarmusch. I remember one night when Lou Reed came in with Vaclav Havel and Madeleine Albright. Wow. Wow. it, It was incredible. Rudolf Nureyev came in to check out uh, Patti Smith. You know, it was a real international scene all of a sudden. And uh, the bathrooms were still pretty bad, though. <laughs> Nobody cared. I gotta tell you, 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 unless you have taken a piss or and the ladies, I don't know how the ladies, they must have stooped because the bathrooms at CBGB were the worst I've yeah. ever been in. And there's only one in Philadelphia and they fixed it, but there was only one place in Philadelphia that ever came close and it's the only place in the world, Marcus, I don't know if you ever went in there, but you could literally start to gag if it was on a bad night. It would start to gag you before you got to the trough because it was a trough. But, and you know, it's that kind of a smell, Chris, it never leaves your brain, your olfactory memory in your brain, right? It's just always there. So CBGB's was like our incubator, as I said, but it it was also the platform on which we were able to hone our stagecraft and get to the point where we had the confidence to make our first record. Again, we were very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. Time to stop up and go to Crooked Eye here in the middle of the podcast. You know, one of the things that I appreciate is anytime I go into Crooked Eye Brewery right there at York and Montgomery in the heart of Hatboro, I always feel good. And that includes feeling safe about where we're hanging out. You know what I'm talking about, Marcus? I definitely know what you're talking about as during the COVID pandemic, it is important that people feel safe when they're going out and about. Very important. And Crooked Eye has that warm, safe vibe. And they're doing everything according to the governor's directions. They're, they know that that's what's in everyone's best interest. But they're still serving, Marcus, that's right. The takeout, your growler, your crowler, your 16-ounce cans, all still there. All the wonderful flavors that you love about Crooked Eye Brewery. And don't forget when you stop in to get your takeout brews, wear a mask. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that Pete and Paul and Jeff and everybody, and we're learning too, is that it's a constantly changing landscape when it comes to what's going on. So I would urge all of you to follow Crooked Eye Brewery on Facebook, and you'll find out just what's going on there today, tomorrow, next week, and as things change. Crooked Eye Brewery, right in the heart of Hatboro. Pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014, and we thank them for their support of the podcast. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. 
Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner. And Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash Pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. After a frosty brew, Marcus, I'm ready for more of our interview with Chris France. During the time period and through the decades afterwards, you've gotten to play with many musicians and many bands over the years. Are there any musicians or bands that you did not get to play with that you really wanted to play with over those years? Oh, Bob Marley. <laughs> did you see him live back when he was alive? I saw him in Philadelphia. Oh, wow. Towards, towards the end of his performing career at, at Penn. It was at the University of Pennsylvania in a big gymnasium. Yeah, they had a lot of shows there for a long, legendary shows there. I saw many. It's no longer there. The The building was taken down, but uh, that was a great spot, and I can only imagine seeing Marley there. Another group uh, I would mention it, it would be uh, Kraftwerk. A recurring theme here on the podcast, right, Marcus? Yes, they're big influencers in different branches of the uh, history of rock and roll, so they keep coming when up. When Chris Schwartz and you... from Roughhouse was on with us, he talked about how much of an influence that it was on him and and those around him so that so much so that when he got into doing roughhouse and, and working with all those artists the craft work influence you know spread out to this, a lot of those bands because of the sampling and the equipment that was used and how they're not in the rock and roll hall of fame is probably beyond you as well you know i i'm able to vote for the rock and roll hall of fame and i i get a ballot and i i think they've been nominated five times now Anyway, multiple times, and I always vote for them, but they didn't make it yet. They'll get in. They have to get in. Yeah. We have what we have partially because they're one of those bands. Also in the book, you talk about both the Talking Heads and the Tom Tom Club, which I was also fortunate to see the Escape from New York tour at Fiddler's Green in Colorado. I was in Denver at that time. Oh, yeah. That and was so, fun. A great band, totally different sound than the Talking Heads. Did your sound change a lot, or was that the vision for what you had as the Tom Tom Club? or did it more from something else that you had started? 
Well, how Tom Tom Club came about was it was not our idea really to start another band, but David was determined to do a solo album, which uh, with a collaboration with Twyla Tharp that was called The Catherine Wheel. And then Jerry said, well, if David's going to do a solo album, I'm going to do a solo album. So Jerry went off and did his solo album. I remember that. I remember that. I remember his. And, uh, Tina and I looked at each other and like, what are we going to do? And our accountant said, this is right after the big remain and light tour which was a highly successful fantastic tour but because there were so many people involved it didn't make any money our accountant said chris and tina you better do something because you're broke (laughs) (laughs) uh, the the word you never want to hear right yeah we were not flat broke but we didn't have much of a cushion left so we went to seymour and seymour said oh i've already i can't do three talking head solo albums i'm already doing two i can't afford another one Seymour Stein at Sire. And so our manager, our manager talked to Chris Blackwell at Island Records. He explained our situation and and we knew Chris because we had recorded a couple albums down at Compass Point and he had been very friendly to us. He, he had even come to see us at, at CBGB's with Robert Palmer and Andy Warhol. He liked us, but he said, I'm really working on breaking Bob Marley right now. This was 1976, I think. I'm really working on breaking Bob Marley right now, and I just can't do anything else. But he said to our manager, you know what? I understand the value of a good rhythm section. Why don't uh, Chris and Tina come down a Compass Point and record a single? And if I like the single, then they can do a whole album. And we said, great, we'll take that offer. And we had a meeting with Lee Perry in New York. To, yeah. Because we thought we got to be produced by Lee Perry. And we met with Lee at the Howard Johnson's on 8th Avenue where he was staying. And uh, he said, yeah, man, I can do it. I said, great. <laughs> we set the date. Lee didn't show up. And no! We no. Waited, and we waited and, and Scratch didn't show up. So there was a young Jamaican kid working at Compass point as a staff engineer. His name was Stephen Stanley. In fact, he had recorded the basic tracks for Once in a Lifetime with us. So we knew he was good. He was like 20. We said to Chris Blackwell, how about if, since Scratch hasn't shown up, how about if we just go in the studio with Stevie and see what happens? He said, great idea. We went in and we recorded Wordy Rapping Hood. The idea was, I think you how this conversation started was you were asking what we were trying to sound like yeah. or attempt sound. We just wanted to make a good party record that our friends at the Mud Club and Danceteria would enjoy and the DJs would like to play. A record that would show people a good time on the dance floor. And I'm putting my hand up because I was one of those college DJs who said, yep, I'm going to play that. That sounds like fun. Yeah. So, yeah, it was very well received and we had a huge success with it. But it was it was thanks to Chris Blackwell and, and you know, giving us the opportunity. You know, a lot, a lot of music business people, they don't really understand music that much. they don't don't understand the runnings of how things really work but chris blackwell to his credit he did understand and um, so we played him wordy rapping hood you know a rough mix of it when he came in to the studio he said i love it finish it up and then start on making a new uh, whole album so that's how that all came about and then we did uh and then the tom tom first tom tom club album so we love that studio Sadly, it's 
no longer in existence. But You talked a little bit about your time at Compass Point and in the Bahamas, and there were some great little stories that came about because we did an episode about The Clash, and during that time at Compass Point, read about 300 in your book, you talk about the time you were spending in Compass Point. Mick Jones, Big Audio Dynamite was there, and we did an episode about The Clash and the history of The Clash, and we began with that period of time in the Bahamas when Joe Strummer drove around the Bahamas looking for Mick to find him so that he could patch things up. And then I read at about 300, 301, 302 in your book that he asked you where Mick was so he could patch yeah. things up. And it's just so mind-blowing, these small little pockets of people and how everybody's connected in one weird little way or another. And it's just, it's marvelous as far as putting everything together and into perspective. So do you remember that time period, like when uh, Joe came by and how bad oh, yeah. he felt? What I, was that like? It was so funny. It was real early in the morning and, and Tina and I had, we had a young son, you know, a, a toddler. And so we were up early. <laughs> and, uh, there's a knock on the door and I opened the door. I thought, who the heck's that this morning? And I, I opened the door and there was Joe Strummer standing there with like no shoes, sand on his feet and like a dripping bathing suit. And he said, I lost my luggage. And, and, <laughs> and I said, Come on in, Joe. He said, well, well, I, actually, I'm looking for Mick. Do you know where he is, where he might be, where he is? And I said, yeah, I know exactly where he is. And I, I took him down there, which was, you know, 100 yards away. And then we we took them all out on our motorboat. We had a little motorboat. And nice. Tina and I took them out on the boat. And we, we had a wonderful time together. And it looked like they were getting along great. But I, I think Mick Jones didn't want to go back to the clash after, after what had happened. Yeah. And it's a shame. In The Future is Unwritten, Mick spoke a little bit about that in the documentary and about how much he was hurt by that and Bernie, yeah. the whole Bernie Rhodes situation and the negative yeah. impact Bernie Rhodes had on their relationship as songwriters. So Yeah, Bernie was a jerk. I can tell you from <laughs> personal experience. <laughs> we seem to hear that a lot from people who have known about him. Also, your uh, Lou Reed sweet tooth story in your book is absolutely crazy how he sat and just ate a pint of ice cream while talking to you. Yes. So. And, and then he got hungry for pancakes and we went across the street and he had a big stack of pancakes. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. Again, getting back to the book, you've uh, shared all these stories, you've interwoven it with your life and the overlying theme is, is that you've remained in love with your wife who you've built a wonderful life with. You started the story in Rome, Italy. Why did you pick that point to start your book? I started at that point because as I was writing the book, I was checking out YouTube videos of the band from various points in time. And that Live in Rome 1980 concert was to me the most outstanding of all. I mean, there are many, many good performances to choose from, but that one in particular was just beyond belief to me. Maybe you've seen it on YouTube. Just enter a search for uh, Talking Heads Rome. It will come up. It was in December, right before Christmas, and it, it was the next to the last show of that tour. And the audience was phenomenal. It, I mean, it was like, you talk about a mob in ancient Rome. Well, this was like yeah. a mob in 1980s Rome. And it was like, <laughs> a like, punk mob. <laughs> yeah. Mostly young guys. There were a few women in the audience, but not very many. And they were going wild. And I just remember how exciting it was. And I thought, I wrote about it. And then 
as I was putting the book together, I thought I should start with this chapter, like start off with a bang. You know, it also enabled me, like on the encore of that song, Tina, who was dressed in a, a white sheath dress that she had made herself with a slit on the side all the way up to her hip, decided she was going to go climb the PA system with her bass while still playing her bass guitar. Wow. So it was at that point of time that, you know, I'm sitting there playing the drums and I thought, oh my God, we've really done it. You know, we've, we've gotten to this point. Look at us now. Look at Tina. Look at this wild scene. And how cool is this? So that's why I started with that chapter. I think we need to put a link to that show up on our Facebook page, The uh, Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll on Facebook. We're yeah. talking with Chris France. His book is out in July, correct? July 21st, yes. Remain in Love is the title. The fact that you were able to see the world the way you were moving around as a military child, do you think that helped your perspective as far as with art and music goes because of how you saw the world? You got to see it a little differently than most. I don't know if the military had anything to do with the art and music, although one thing that was instilled in me by my father was that if you wanted a good leader or a good person in general, you have to be able to get down with all different types of people. You have to be able to, to uh, converse and hang with people from all parts of society. And I think that helped me, you know, going forward. He was very supportive of your arts and your music and all of that as well, which yeah. I would have to say from some of the other musicians that we have studied that had military parents, their parents tended to not be as supportive of the arts and the music overall because of that structured military lifestyle. Yeah, I, I guess uh, I was lucky. I mean, I know I was, but my parents were always, my mom used to drive around Pittsburgh in a Ford Country Squire with a bumper sticker on the back that said, New Wave Parents. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Tina's dad was in the Navy. He was an admiral, right? Yes. Were, were, they, were they equally or also supportive of her pursuing the arts? Absolutely, yes. That's awesome. Because really of what Marcus is saying, we, we study a lot of this. So it's always great to see different trends or things that buck the trend that we've been researching and learning about. And for you two to come out, to end up together and be such a wonderful couple together is a tribute to both sets of your parents and your families because you've got a view of the world that wouldn't be there unless you were, as they would say, raised right. And uh, that's re it's really cool to know that you both got that support for your art. And you went to art school, so I guess they, you know, they were supportive to that point at least. Yes, absolutely. I think they, uh, I can't really speak for Tina's parents, although probably they felt the same way. I think my parents wondered, why the heck does he want to be in a band? <laughs> you know, there's no security, you yeah. know. But once the uh, success started coming in, even small amounts, like my parents and Tina's parents came to see us perform at a place called The Kitchen when we were in Soho when we were still a trio and you know it was sold out that night i remember john kale got there late and he was turned away and we thought oh wow, wow. john kale was turned away but when my parents saw what was happening and what we were actually beginning to accomplish they got behind it a hundred percent that's really cool. exciting that your parents supported you that way and also you mentioned that your uh, father worked at and was stationed at fort campbell for a while did he ever cross paths with one of the most famous people to ever 
stay at Fort Campbell, Jimi Hendrix? <laughs> Jimmy was, I think, after my father's stay there. My father's stay there, I was I was born there during that time, and it, that was 1951. So I, th I think Jimmy probably came through in the late 50s, early 60s, something like that. And also you had said in your book that you had worked at a furniture store and Kurt Vonnegut had come in. Did you get to say any words or speak to Kurt Vonnegut at all? And I, if so, what was your I, interaction? Yeah, I remember saying something to him like, I love Cat's Cradle. And he just looked at me and winked, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he was a nice guy. He was a regular customer. I think he would buy wedding presents and things like that there. And he always had the same trench coat with the same coffee stains down the front of the trench coat. <laughs> wow. He's pretty disheveled, you know, yeah. And um, but a sweet guy. I have great respect for him. I just wanted to say that it's been wonderful talking to you. I wish you all the luck with the book because your story, if, even if it was just about you and Tina, it would be an incredible story. One of the things that I enjoy is uh, we are Facebook friends for, I don't know, almost the whole time I've been on there, is when you occasionally post, here's my view today or my view of the world today. And, and every now and then, not lately, of course, it's, you know, uh, out the hotel window. Oh, look, it's the Eiffel Tower or something Caribbean or something cool. But my favorite is the picture you post when you take a picture of your little pond that you have there by the house. And that lets me know as somebody who loves you guys that you're living good and to know that you're still in love and still happy together is just uh, it's one of those things that makes you feel good because a lot of times people don't know Chris we don't know what your life you're living some people just show the business part of it and I think in your case you have a lot of thoughtful fans people who are caring people who've been following you for 43 years in some cases longer right back to the early CB's days and I just want to thank you and and uh, I want to ask how Tina's doing because we haven't talked much about her and I don't want her to be upset that we didn't, you know, let her know that we love her too and and how much we admire what you very guys are. happy to, to hear that. She's doing great. She's doing fine. And I think I, did I mention that she's working on a book of her own? No. No! Yes. Uh, it's early days still, but mm -hmm. I can assure you it's going to be well worth reading. <laughs> Good deal. If Seymour was involved with you guys at this point, he would have coordinated it so that your books were coming out within a few months of each other so we could do the book tour. Yeah. <laughs> but then people get to see you and her again when her book comes out down the line. I'd be happy to do so, and I'm sure she would too. And one last question. Why should people read Remain in Love? Why should somebody who likes to read pick up this book? Well, I think it's chock full of adventures and experiences that are highly entertaining. <laughs> Very and nice. also, as you pointed out, it is a love story and it does have a happy ending. It includes the history of a couple of really groovy bands. That's true. <laughs> And you also, one of the things that I really enjoyed at the beginning, you said that you achieved a rare trifecta, achieving critical success, artistic success, and commercial success at the same time, which is very rare in the music industry, yeah, especially true. today. Did you ever compromise anything, or do you feel that you were able to fully be yourselves the entire time? I never felt like I had to compromise, no. I don't think David or Tina and Jerry did. No, we were just going for it every <laughs> every day. You know. Cool. I've been listening with everybody else, Marcus, and my jaw has been agape. It's unbelievable, man. They did it. They got it. They did it their way. They got the trifecta, and they didn't have to compromise to get it, and became a huge influence 
in the realm of the music of the late 70s into the 80s and beyond. Think about it. Living Color covered Memories Can't Wait and did an incredible cover of it. So a band like Talking Heads having an influence on Living Color when Vernon Reed and those guys used to sneak into CBGB's underage and catch their music. I can't wait to talk to him about that sometime. That'll be a whole lot of fun. I know. I definitely want to talk to those guys about their days at CBGB sneaking in underage. But the Talking Heads and their music, as we talked about a little bit through the interview, their albums are all so good. They're all so different. They're all so unique and in a lot of ways very groundbreaking because of what they influenced moving forward and again they being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is well deserved because they are one of those bands who made such a huge difference and set the tone. And we got to thank Katie Bassel from St. Martin's Press for getting us together with Chris and giving us both a chance to geek out and be fanboys with one of our all-time favorite drummers. How about that? Can you believe we got to do that interview? It was a blast to be able to talk to Chris, a very nice guy. And he told us that Tina's writing a book, so we'll get to talk to her hopefully soon, too. Boy, that would be a lot of fun as well to hear about her book and her viewpoint of everything that happened in the Talking Heads, which will be totally different. Remain in love. It's in bookstores. Go get it and enjoy that. And thanks for listening to the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.